on fucking jour, my degenerate angels, and welcome back into your mommy's arms, your return to the womb, your only place where you truly feel safe, another episode of Tales of Taboo. For those of you who are new here, my name is Allie Weiss. I am a Z-list performer and writer born and raised in downtown New York City, who has an obsession with any and all people, ideas, or experiences that make society freak out, seek God, and or call the police. In other words, this show is an exploration and illumination of the subjects that most people would rather avoid. But we do it through anonymous stories from our listeners all over the world who have actually experienced these things and so can talk about them firsthand. My goal is to present you with slices of life that we've been taught are bad and encourage you to reconsider why exactly we give them that label. I seek to erase shame from the conversation, but also explore the idea of anonymity in the digital age and how most of us desperately want to be heard, just not seen. So let's get into it. My old drug dealer had the most interesting background. I don't want to give too much away because they might send someone after me, but they were in um, a sector of the medical field. Like, they absolutely would have been considered a frontline hero. And simultaneously, they and their friends were doing drugs recreationally, and they became really interested in where it was all coming from. Especially with the rise of fentanyl, they felt more and more that sourcing shouldn't be left in someone else's hands. So... They took it upon themselves to uh, familiarize themselves with the deepest, darkest depths of the internet, quit their job, and became a full-time drug sourcer, tester, and dealer whose clientele came only from personalized referrals. And how do I put this? Most of those clients were very successful people in another very illegal field. Their prices, let me tell you, were through the fucking roof. Like you would scream if I told you how much a G cost, but the drugs were like what I imagine it was in the 70s. Just so clean, so pure. I never had anything less than a 10 out of 10 experience with anything I purchased with the exception of that synthetic like 2CB shit that everyone's obsessed with. And it was horrible, but that story is for another time. Anyway, I say this not to encourage you all to follow in my early and mid-20s footsteps and experiment with narcotics, but rather to show that not every person who sells drugs is terrifying and violent and evil. My dealer simply knew that there was a massive demand for them, for better or worse, and that people would continue to want drugs regardless of whether or not my dealer decided to start selling them, you know? So like the savvy business person with a heart of gold that they are, they decided to get in on all that cash, but 
to do it with a conscience to, in their own way, better the field. That said, <laughs> Carrie Bradshaw moment, I couldn't help but wonder, did they ever feel guilty? Like guilty for enabling bad behaviors in others, guilty for feeding addictions, guilty for, well, not to be grim, but potentially having a death on their hands. But like, let's compare it to cheating. From a moral and ethical standpoint, yeah, of course you don't want to get involved with married man or a woman in a long-term relationship and be the homewrecker, it's wrong. And it's insanely hurtful, um, especially if there are children involved. But the coldest, hardest truth is that cheaters are determined to cheat. Cheating stems from a larger issue of being unhappy in or in some way dissatisfied with a relationship. So if it's not you, it's gonna be someone else. And that realization poses the question of, if you know it's going to happen anyway, how bad is your personal involvement really? In my opinion, which we all know could very well be wrong. The same applies to drug dealers. And that's why this week I put out a casting call to hear their stories of why. Guys, look, I have not obliterated all of my brain cells with various white powders. Like in no way, shape or form could anybody even attempt to tell you that Drug dealing is as noble of an existence as being like a preschool teacher, but drugs are a deeply ingrained part of economies and social ecosystems all over the world. And they'll continue to exist regardless of the extremity of the measures taken against them. And ultimately, it's up to the user to decide how to deal with it. So, without further ado, this is Tales of Taboo. Submission number one. When I first started and was heavy into dealing, it was mainly Coke and Molly. I'd fly to the Philippines five times a year and buy a G of blow for around $70 and resell it usually for $500 sometimes up to 700 when shit was getting super dry. Molly, I'd get $20 a capsule and sell it between 75 and 125 depending on who the person was. I'm not going to go into full detail on how I smuggled the product in or the amounts I brought in, but just know it was a lot. My clientele ranged from kids who loved and could afford to party to lawyers, CEOs, pretty much just rich people in general. I never dealt with clients in person just to keep my identity safe. I worked with two people who I'll call Kim and Andrew. These guys knew and mingled with the rich folks who love to party, and they would have their friends place orders with them when they found out the dates I was going to Manila. I'd front the money for the product, which made the buyers comfortable so in case something happened, they wouldn't lose money. There would be times I'd get single orders from one person of blow worth up to $10,000. 
I'd give Kim and Andrew some blow as payment as well. I first got into dealing because I loved partying. I partied hardcore throughout my 20s, always traveling all over Asia, mainly to Manila, since a lot of EDM DJs like Cascade, Calvin Harris, and Dead Mouse frequented the country at the time. And making only $16 an hour at my government job wasn't exactly going to cut it financially to fund these trips. Even more so, when flying to festivals in the U.S., like EDC, Coachella, and Ultra, it cost $2,000 on just the economy class plane ticket alone. I was a user before I started dealing. As far as never getting high off your supply, I feel that statement depends on the person using and if they have self-control or not. I can handle my quote-unquote addiction and I know when to stop, so it was never an issue for me. The first sale I ever made was like $7,000 in profit. I felt so powerful and I was hungry for more. I wanted to be the guy who my friends counted on to have party favors. I loved the attention I got from it. People kissed my ass to party with me. Even up to this day when I go on vacations, people always tell me they want to go with me. Money and drugs really have an influence on people. At first, of course, I was nervous. During my first smuggling trip, I got off the plane back from Manila and I was literally clenching my fucking asshole the entire time I was at the airport. As I exited customs, I saw one of my friends who was an officer and I went through his line. I bullshitted with him as he processed my paperwork, playing it really cool. Once I got my airport routine down and studied how the officers moved and also doing homework on which officers to avoid and whatnot, it became fairly easier and the paranoia somewhat stopped. The most I made from one trip was a little under $30,000. As a child, my family was comfortable. We weren't, like, rich, but we weren't poor either. I'd say we were in the upper middle class. After I graduated from high school, my parents told me to find a job and started making me pay bills. I had to find jobs that could fund the lifestyle I was accustomed to, and minimum wage didn't cut it. So that's kind of why I turned to dealing. On another note, I also wasn't used to having large amounts of cash on me, so it was somewhat of a new experience for me as well. I'm not gonna lie, I did purchase designer clothes, shoes, accessories, and whatnot every now and then, but it wasn't like I had to have it. I'd rather go and spend money on a trip. The craziest thing I'd say I experienced was doing blow in the back of the club with a pretty famous EDM DJ. I didn't sell him the blow, I just shared my stash with him while vacationing in the Philippines. Oh, and also selling and doing Molly with a vice president's son at a Porter Robinson show in Hong Kong, and that's all the details I'm giving on that. The only run-in with the law I ever had was when I was at an after-hours spot which got raided by some cops, but I ended up knowing one of the officers, so I was good. I knew who my regular clients were because Kim and Andrew would mention who they were and the majority of them had money. As far as randoms who bought, I didn't know, nor did I care to know what their financial situations were. If they chose to buy blow and get high versus feeding their family or spending their entire paycheck and not being able to pay their rent was none of my business. The less you know, the better. I didn't really see any dark shit, to be honest. What my clients did after the blow was sold to them was none of my business. Most of my coke stories involved raves, concerts, clubs, that kind of thing. Drugs unify people when partaking in these activities. I stopped dealing blow when the new president of the Philippines took reins of the country and started killing and hunting down anyone associated with drugs. 
If that's not a good enough excuse to quit, then I don't know what kind of shit you're smoking. As of now, I'm just a middleman, and I get a cut of whoever I connect my plug with. I don't deal coke anymore, although I'm still a recreational user. Just pills, steroids, and I'm helping my boy make some synthetic weed that sells for $900 to $2,500 a G in prisons. I can stop now if I wanted, but I just like having some extra cash on hand if I need. The party aspect of it, I wouldn't change it for the world. So many great memories. The selling part, i definitely say was life-changing. Without it, I wouldn't have been able to experience a lot of travels, concerts, festivals, and whatnot. I think the media focuses on big-time dealers. A lot of them have lavish lifestyles. Us smaller guys just want to live comfortably and splurge every now and then on something nice. I am a current narcotics dealer. My client demographic is hippies and festival goers. I deal mostly MDMA and copious amounts of LSD, um, a little bit of cocaine, but mostly MDMA and LSD. Before I was a dealer, I was a user. I've never been a drug addict or a chronic drug user um, besides weed. I do smoke a lot of weed, <laughs> um, but I've never been uh, into any harder drugs than MDMA and LSD. I had seen many, many people in um, my scene and festival scene uh, die because there were things like fentanyl mixed into um, their party drugs that they were not necessarily seeking out to do. But as you know, some people cut their drugs with fentanyl and a little bit can kill you. The first time I decided I wanted to get into it, it was after uh, my partner and I, we witnessed uh, someone that we really care about die. And we decided that we have access to safe things. We have access to, to safe product that, um, that we know is good and safe and we know who makes it and we know where it comes from. And we have testing kits. So we decided that it would probably be safer if we were the supply. Um, we knew where it came from. We can test it. So anyone that we gave it to, we felt... Um, better about them having it. I am of the mind that uh, people are going to do drugs. They will do them anyway. And I was sick of seeing people die. And I wanted to give them a safe way to, to consume the drugs that they were already going to consume. I wouldn't say I'm a huge dealer, but I make pretty decent money, anywhere between five to 15,000, depending on, on the day or um, if it's busy season or um, kind of what the deal is. Here's the part that I really want to stress is I believe that there is a stigma when it comes to um, people who, who do this, who are um, dealers. And I don't deal because I want copious amounts of money. I don't want to have power. Um, I deal for two reasons. One, so that I know that the people in my community are getting safe drugs. And also because I have kids <laughs> and um, I want them to have access to, to things that I didn't necessarily have. And we haven't bought anything really lavish. We haven't spent a lot of money. We're actually pretty, pretty quiet about what we spend our money on. We kind of you know, put it to the side and slowly stack it up. It really helps that I have another pretty, pretty well-paying job. So um, it makes it pretty easy for us to kind of stack money and, and slowly move it in. Um, the most lavish thing we've bought is our home. <laughs> um, we didn't buy it all with the money that we made, obviously, but um, it definitely helped. Um, it's also helped our kids uh, do extra extracurricular activities. It's helped our kids um, have things that they need, pay off medical bills, um, all the things 
things that you would think that it wouldn't be used for, we have used it for. The reason I'm doing this is I'm trying to change the stigma of, of what a drug dealer actually is. I am a mom. I am a businesswoman. I um, do go to festivals and I, and I do uh, go to a lot of shows. And so I would say that would be the funnest part of my job is to, is to witness people I love and people in the community that, I, that I've loved and been a part of since I was 14 years old um, have a safe have a safe way to to party and express themselves and to dance. Um, it makes me feel really good that the product that I'm providing them is is top notch and and is not going to hurt them. I do wrestle a guilty conscience. The 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 thing that gets me is um, I have kids and of course it's a risk um, every day. It's a risk and I do have a guilty conscience with that. We've gone back and forth about um, stopping. Should we stop? Should we not stop? Should we dial it back? Each time we come to the conclusion that we will, but people are still dying. And so I feel an obligation to, to, to help in any way that I can. These are people that I care about. Really, what we're trying to do is, is just get a good, a a good head start and then we'll and then we'll get out. But right now we're we're pretty quiet about it and we're pretty safe about it and we don't have a vast amount of customer base. It's 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 a couple people and they do really big, really big purchases every once in a while. I really just wanted to to change the narrative on on who drug dealers actually are. Um, they're not always dangerous. They're not always out to hurt people. They're not always cutting their stuff with fentanyl. Um, I think it's really important that there's um, good, conscious people who are doing this as well. Otherwise, the only people who will be doing it are dangerous. I started dealing cocaine my senior year of college. I was definitely a user before I was a dealer. I tried it a few times. I really loved it. So then I found a dealer in my college town and then we were partying, partying there a lot. And then we were cleaning. Me and my friend were like cleaning his house once a week. So we got free drugs. And then it turned into he w was getting too much product. Um, so he wanted people to help him sell it. So we were like, yeah, we can totally help you sell it. So we started out like maybe taking 10 grams, like 10 individual grams to a party and being like, hey, you know, we're selling Coke. If you want some, like, please, we'll, we'll sell it to you. And then it was 20 grams and then it was eight balls, which is like three and a half grams. And then all of a sudden we were dealing a lot of Coke. I didn't do it for like money or anything. I just did it for fun. I wanted to make some extra money, but I also just wanted free drugs and I wanted to have like a party lifestyle, I think. When I dealt, I would get paid usually like half in cash and like half in product. So I could choose to like sell the rest of the product and make more money or I keep some for myself. Mostly it was pretty much just cocaine that we dealt, but if my dealer got anything like ecstasy or like Molly, then we'd deal that too. He had like a bunch of girls that like dealt, helped deal or whatever, but a lot of the girls like slept with him for drugs and like hooked up with him. And like, I never ever wanted to do that. Like I really just wanted to party rather than like do sexual favors. I just had like a ton of fun. We were in a big, I was in a big college setting. So it, I never felt like super paranoid about getting caught by the cops or anything. Like parties would get busted, but I never carried like a ton of drugs on me at one time. I guess I felt kind of invincible. As it escalated and it got, you know, we were making more and more money. Our dealer would like, you know, bring us to bigger cities and we got to go to like 
VIP sections at clubs, which is so cool. And we met a few famous people, a few basketball players, got to go to like really cool after parties. It just kept escalating to be like more and more fun and cool. And I like was just worried about being fun and having fun. I think I felt like a level of importance, like I was important because I was doing this and it like gave me an edge. I think because I was naive, I like never thought about the consequences. And I, I don't think any of my friends even know this, but I was making like a thousand dollars a week. Plus then I got my free, my free uh, samples. So then I could sell those or I could just like use them. I never purchased like anything crazy, but I did buy a car because I was able to, I just like to like take my friends out and like go to like, you know, get like get bottle service and like act like we were like fancy ass bitches and pretend I was rich, I guess. The most like random person I sold to was one of my professors. He bought off me a few times, which I just thought was so weird. He's like one, I think he's like an English or a speech professor. Um, and then he showed up to like one of the parties and that was super <laughs> awkward. And I stopped hearing from him after that. I think the scariest part, I had a gun held to my head twice. Um, in like the two years that I was doing this and I watched one of my friends get like pistol whipped across the face over like a total misunderstanding that wasn't even her fault or my fault. I had a gun held to my head once too um, and then the cops came so that was like the one time we almost got caught because we were at my dealer's house but definitely like a scary moment but I think as a 21 year old like young stupid idiot I I don't think any of us like thought anything of it because it didn't stop me from what I was doing. I mean, I almost didn't pass college. I almost did not graduate. I was skipping classes. I was in a sorority at the time for like all four years. And one of my friends and one of my sorority sisters, so two different people like ratted me out that I was probably doing drugs and selling drugs. So our like sorority mom took me to lunch one day and they tried to get me enrolled in like the campus um, abstinence program, like drugs and alcohol abstinence. So I had to go meet with this counselor and tell her all of my drug history and all this shit. And I obviously wasn't like caring about it that much at that point. I didn't like pass that obviously or like continue on with it and got kicked out of my sorority. I got stripped of my title. I was, ironically, I was the social chair. So I like set up all the parties, but they kicked me out never to be seen again and then you know everyone talks shit about me in all of the I guess sorority community because I was like this bad bad girl and none of my sorority sisters did coke um definitely a lot of sorority girls did coke but no one in my sorority did so I was definitely like the odd woman out I was in it for like a year I graduated I moved down to like the big city like an hour away from my college town and met another dealer there, started dealing for him. Just same type of like small stuff. And that got sketchy because he had guns all the time. He was super paranoid. And then he actually overdosed on Xanax and alcohol and died like an hour after I picked up from him. And so that was kind of a wake up call to have someone like die. And it kind of fizzled after that, my my selling career. I definitely still dabbled in drugs for like years after that, but it was kind of like a easy out for me, I guess. It was a good life experience. I mean, I know it's like kind of terrible. I think people think it's terrible. But, like I had a ton of fucking fun. I think I made a lot of my friends mad during this time and I maybe made some poor life choices, but I have like a lot of good stories and I think I shock a lot of people when I tell them the stories, like I think it's a good shock factor. I don't regret it. I think it's something like fun and interesting about me, even if people are judgmental about it. 
In late 2009, at 19, after a fruitless gap year, I decided not to go to college, but instead sold my car back to my parents for the $1,000 I had contributed to its purchase at 16 years old and moved into a one-bedroom condo with two friends from high school where I slept on the couch for $100 a month. After a few months of a newly discovered life away from home with no responsibility, my roommates decided to leave on an extended road trip to Washington, where they ended up stuck for a few years, and I was left with a condo and $1,200 a month in rent, for which I had no way or intention of paying. After about a month of dodging the landlord, I threw a party I remember very little about to try and raise money, and ended up with three new roommates looking for a place to hang and sell drugs from, more than an actual house to stay at. D, who moved in a few months after when he was kicked out of another place for a DUI, B, who was a few years older than me with a heart condition and a great relationship with his doctor from whom he picked up basically any medication he asked for, and S, who ran weed back and forth from his uncle's farm in Kansas or somewhere in middle America. It tasted exactly like blueberries. I have dreams about it. Though you might think this would have made us all fabulously wealthy, we used as much as we sold and ended up breaking even most months and still needing to pay the rent. A few months of paying the landlord in weed, pills, a cat, and just pretending we weren't there by hiding in a nearby tree right off the second floor balcony every day for a week when we saw him driving into the complex and waiting till he stopped yelling at the door, or getting him too high to remember we owed him money, we decided we needed a more steady income stream. We moved all the furniture out of the back room, stuffed everyone's clothes into the small mirrored closet, and split the room in half with garbage bags and tape. We then stole a few high-intensity grow lights from some dealer that a friend had a grudge against, along with a few bins of weed, in the middle of the night, and sprouted seeds we had found who knows where. After a bit of trial and error, some advice, and some cloning, we were growing 50 plants on each side of the room and just trying to keep the secret while still having parties and people over, etc. We sold the bud at budget prices to a set of clinics in a strip mall down the street that also housed a bong shop, Montessori, massage parlor, and a nursing technical school, along with about seven dispensaries among hundreds that sprung up in the first boom of the Cali medical cannabis market before legalization. With that income, we started to get into a rhythm. Over spring, our little clan grew, and soon it was seven guys— all sleeping on their individual couches in the front room with just enough wall space for our entertainment center. We all applied for food stamps, got our entire bodies tattooed, paying in weed and hydrocodone, did more LSD and mushrooms than anyone had any right to. I learned more about myself, people, and empathy than I had in all my life before. Somehow, the steady stream of people in and out of our apartment went generally unremarked upon to all except our poor downstairs neighbor, who we basically drove insane. We lived a chaotic but prosperous summer until I invited in a friend who needed a place to stay. She brought a few friends that were similarly in need of shelter and who were beautiful, meth, and heroin-addicted goth strippers. This proved too much for the boys, and soon I was back in the house by myself. All the weed was stolen. Half the guys moved to one of their father's houses when he moved out of the country. I met my now wife, packed up the grow lights, and threw my couch off the balcony into the dumpster area before leaving the keys on the counter and basically just left a dirty, wrecked condo without talking to the landlord. 
I moved to her place, a rented room in an apartment with a bunch of surprisingly positive and woke frat guys, and that's where I finally found a bit of peace. Much of my time in the drug house is a haze of alcohol and Xanax, but I lived the dream that an entitled punk kid dreams of anarchy and nihilism, but found it was not quite for me. As I've built myself, my skills, and my life since then, I found out that I want to build a better world more than I want to tear this one down. This is about me being a drug dealer. Uh, yeah, which I still kind of am. Um, so, uh, which sounds weird to even say out loud, not going to lie. Because uh, I never viewed myself as a drug dealer per se, but I guess that's exactly what it is. Because just the word drug dealer is just so weighted. I got into it because... I love weed. Um, I've been smoking weed since I was in college. All my friends smoke weed. Um, I had a really um, bad relationship with weed early on just because it was I, it was done with excess because I was a kid, didn't know what I was doing, wasn't the most responsible when it came to that. And I was surrounded by people who were, yeah, far from being responsible. Um, so that didn't help either. I had a desire to be loved and to be uh, accepted by people. So the people who I was surrounded by were hardcore drug, not I guess druggies, but just would wake and bake and smoke all day. I love shrooms. Uh, shrooms to this day is still my favorite drug of all time. So I got involved because I'm an actor and as an actor, it's really hard to make good money where I'm from. At the time I was in Texas. And in Texas, there's just not a whole lot of work. Um, I had just been divorced and I hadn't seen my kid in forever. Then I had to pay child support, which of course, like that's, I would totally pay for that, but it was just another added expense. And then I messed up by getting, uh, going to jail or getting arrested mainly uh, for two DWI charges, separate DWI charges within a month. So I had two cases pending. Um, so I had to get a lawyer for both separate cases at the same time and money-wise, that's not fun. So I dug myself a hole and all of that was honestly just a self-destructive moment in my life because of the, the divorce and because I hadn't seen my kid who I would be with every single day and go to sleep with every single day. And all of a sudden I haven't seen my little girl and I mean, a few months at that point. So I was in a downward spiral. I thought, how can I make X amount of money to dig myself out of this hole that I'm in? And I thought of drug dealing because it was all cash and it looked like a good market, believe it or not. And I honestly felt like I landed in a gold mine because I started working shortly thereafter in sales. And I was on a floor with like hundreds, like two to three to 400. There was a lot, I don't even know. It was just so many people. And all these people were between the ages of 22. So they're either straight out of college to like probably 28, 29. That was on average. So these are just young 20 year old adults most of them making more money than they ever thought that they would make. And everyone was just blowing it on drugs, going out, beer, alcohol. If I could just like show up to work and they had to come to this job every single day. But hey, they could come in and get some weed and get some shrooms. They don't have to make that trip. So it just felt like a, 
I could be a necessary evil and asked my friend about it. Basically told him like, hey, I want to get involved in dealing. I asked him what what do the numbers look like? Since I was in sales, I kind of had a sales background and business background anyway. So I kind of just know how to deal with business. It just so happened that this specific business was illegal. I had the best stuff you could find in, in Austin, Texas. It like was top notch. I had been a a smoker for years at that point. So I knew what good weed was just because I'd done it so much. I, I, I was a connoisseur. And this was stuff that blew my mind. Way too expensive though, where I wouldn't make much of a profit. But at this point, I was trying to build my book of business in quotation marks. And so I would offer free weed. Like, hey, if you come over here, if if you buy at least a quarter, just buy a hundred bucks worth. A quarter was a hundred bucks is what I was selling. Again, expensive. So if you bought about a hundred dollars worth, I'd give you free G. Or hey, if you've never tried my stuff before, just come here, I'll give you a free gram. And if you refer people to me, so this was the biggest one that actually made me the most or, or built my book a business the quickest was, hey, if you send someone and if a friend of yours that you sent to me buys at least an eighth, uh, they don't need to buy the, 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 the quarter, but if they buy at least an eighth, I will give you two free Gs. And if you recommend three people, say three people come and they buy separate eighths, then that means you get six free Gs. And just, you know, it's like a fucking coupon at this point. And um, my whole thinking about this was my stuff was so damn good that if you just came and tried it, there's no way you're not going to want some more. By that two-year mark, my book of business grew. I was making, um, I mean, I'm, I wasn't like a kingpin and I was very conservative with it because I didn't want to get in trouble. So I did keep it to a minimum. Uh, but I was making north of like $90,000 uh, straight cash a year because every single night I would, uh, on my little uh, book, I would calculate how much profit I made that day. And then every single day I would do it. If I made $0 profit, then I'd put zero. But every single day I was marking something. And every year I would count it all up just to see how I did for the year. And on average, it was about 90,000, which I was happy with because I was making, I was in sales making good money too. So this was just house money. I would not recommend it for everyone. There were moments where People tried breaking into my my apartments. I had to move from place to place because it got too hot. It was a it was it wouldn't have been something I would ever do if I wasn't in the situation that I was in, as well as if I wasn't single. So I could only have I only had to worry about myself in that moment. I started dealing for a number of reasons. Like I guess the core root of why is because I had a long phase in my life where I was extremely agoraphobic. Um, I missed out on the partying years that everybody kind of got to have at the normal time. I didn't go to college. I just had deep-rooted FOMO. <laughs> um, I'm a hairstylist, or I was, and I just wasn't getting treated right at my job. I was starting to lose passion for it. It felt like my whole life was just meaningless and I got connect reconnected with my oldest like my best friend my best friend and she wasn't doing so well either I had a hardcore Xanax problem at the time she was 
doing a lot worse than I thought she was. I thought she also just had a pill problem, but it turns out she was shooting up and it was sort of our little secret and I would make sure that she was safe while she did it. And we were hanging out with the absolute worst crowds possible. Um, I was seeing a guy who was addicted to crack and shooting at meth. And it was because, you know, I have issues and I like people who are dangerous. And also I needed a distraction from my normal life just crumbling. My best friend ended up committing suicide in my bathroom. She gave herself like diabetic shock and um, shot up fentanyl and overdosed. And I found her when we were having a sleepover. I fell asleep and she did it while I was sleeping. And then this guy just sort of, he helped me with her CPR and stuff. She was in a coma for a while and he was living with me and he had a crack addiction. Obviously, if you sell crack, that's the death of you or any drug selling career you may have. He was a dealer. I used to, he used to pay me to like borrow my car, <laughs> which was so stupid. And um, then I was just driving him around all the time. And yeah, I was paying for his addiction. And then I started to get into just, I wasn't doing crack, but I was snorting coke. I started to have to pay for it and then I was losing money and I needed to make it back. So I started selling. And I was on a really long um, grief hellbent bender for about eight months, ending in the beginning of December. I remember when I first started selling that it was high in itself. You feel like you're just the coolest person in the world for the first bit. You feel like such a fucking badass. I wanted to come live with my parents again because I was super underweight i was eating a granola bar a day and do eating coke for breakfast like i was doing lines off the floor <laughs> i came home i confessed everything to my parents and then they sort of put me on a weird house arrest and sold my car and i was so nobody really gave me any sympathy for my grief they just were mad about what i had done and i was bitter and angry and I just started to do coke behind their backs, even though I don't, I wasn't like severely addicted at the time. I think I was on a grief bender, but everybody was telling me I was an addict instead of listening to me. And also they didn't have as much knowledge on the subject. So like I started seeing my boyfriend around the time and I just started saying, fuck it, I'm living with him. My boyfriend now is unlike the crackhead I previously mentioned, like he's a very great guy i mean we do bad shit but he's an amazing person and yeah we were sort of running this little business together um but you know it's incredibly frustrating once you get into it like you have the high of it at first but it's there's a lot of little things that you need to learn just about the ways you actually make money selling coke specifically it sounds very corny but it's called the game for a reason it's all up fucking game and you know you the people who know nothing are the people you have to make your money off of which was something that I had a hard time grasping but you're not hurting anybody you know if you're selling to some party girl and you're shorting her a few points to make an extra couple bucks if you're you know cutting it a bit with something safe obviously um, and you tried it yourself first to make sure there's no nothing laced in it. Like, I'm always pretty adamant about that. I never want to kill somebody. Um, 
who's just trying to have a fucking good time. And I also, anyone I sell to, I just, I don't feel comfortable selling to somebody who's not in a good headspace. Like my friend who died's boyfriend was trying to come to me constantly for shit and I just wouldn't sell it to him because I knew he was just going to kill himself. But, you know, I think that's common sense. I value that over uh, um, any money I would make off of that. Speaking of money, I have no fucking idea how much money I made because I was just so, I didn't, I didn't fucking care. I was caught up in just maintaining this lifestyle, staying away from my family. I was still working as a hairstylist. and I made a lot of money there. I was getting money from the government because of COVID. And then I was just doing this to support my own addiction and also to fulfill the high of doing the bad shit that everybody hated me for doing who was supposed to be there for me when I needed them. The more interesting or funny people I've sold to, I've sold to my parents' friends. And they have no idea. I've sold to businessmen and then, you know, just your local um, drug addict. No shame in that. I'm a drug addict. Coke isn't the only thing I was selling either. Like, I was selling benzos. I was selling opiates. But I always made sure that they were legit and safe for people because I didn't want to hurt anybody. And I know that if you want something, you're going to do it anyway. Some of the craziest shit that's happened was I went into sleep deprivation psychosis um, and tried to kill my boyfriend with a knife because I thought he was my ex. Luckily, it was my current boyfriend and he knew how to disarm me. Um, but like, I didn't know who he was for like three days and I was slurring my words. I escaped the hospital three times in one day because I kept trying to stitch up my arm because like I tried to fight sword fight him and then I ended up cutting up my own arm with a you know those like facial razor blades like for your little baby hairs on your face for like women I uh thought I, I was just trying to I don't know I was in psychosis and I cut my own arm open with it on purpose but I wasn't trying to kill myself but now I have a giant scar because it looks like I did those things are like scalpels I didn't know that I robbed a lot of people because, you know, that's sort of part of earning your stripes. You have to also have to be a little bit feared. And usually the people I robbed were people who deserved it. So I don't feel bad. And I still do sell, like, low-key. It's a side hustle. It's the only way I can make money now. I don't have government money anymore. I don't have my job as a hairdresser anymore. I just have that. I'm trying to find a normal job for now. And then one thing I would say about drug dealers that might be portrayed weirdly in the media is that, you know, we're not all inherently evil. We're not all, like, this cool guy, you know, or some... I don't know. We're not all as fucking slimy as you think. There's a lot of fucking shitty people, though. There's a lot of them who are shitty. They will rob you blind. And, you know, I personally don't think I'm someone who deserves to be robbed. But um, people, you know, especially ones who are addicted to crack or meth will rob you blind because they are so far in that they cannot put anything above it. Usually your drug dealer has a very sad origin story. And uh, I don't know, hug your drug dealer. <laughs> That's so stupid. I don't know. There's part of me that just still feels like kind of a shitty person, but I know that I'm more addicted to, to selling. It fuels your ego. It gives you this amazing adrenaline high that you don't want to let go of. And I'm still not ready to let go. And I know I will be one day. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who identify as neither, my name is Allie Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. 
If you yourself have an anonymous confession that you feel compelled to share with me, it can be about anything, please let me know. My email is ali at aliweisworld.com. You can also DM me on Instagram at aliweisworld. However, those DMs get clogged up real fast with castings and also with really scary love and hate mail. If you love this show, if it resonates with you, please take literally five seconds, like actually five seconds, and leave me a rating and review on any platform you're listening from, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You have the ability to do it on both platforms. And it is the only way that you can be guaranteed good karma for the next 50 years. I am really looking forward to seeing and hearing from you guys next week. As always, your time and attention and care and willingness to be open with me is the only reason that I get out of bed in the morning, not to put too much pressure on you, but it is true. So until we meet again, be good.